G'day, this sermon was delivered by Dave Roberts at Powner Baptist Chapel on the 5th of October 2014. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through you, through your name, we trample our, our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our base boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected us and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep, have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You've made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long. My face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenants. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread our hands out to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? since he knows the secrets of our hearts. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love and no doubt the major part of what Dave will focus on in a moment comes from Romans chapter 8 and it's verses 31 to 39 so that we are on the, in the church Bible page 1135 What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is not God who justifies, sorry, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, 
more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that uh, we can meet in freedom, unlike many of our brothers and sisters around the world who often have to meet in secret. Father, be with our brothers and sisters around the world who are indeed like that, and may the Holy Spirit counsel them that we are indeed praying for them and thinking of them. Be with me now as I speak, that your Spirit would speak through me. And may we leave here changed people, people willing to be transformed into the image of your Son, so those people out there can know there's something different about us and want to be more like Jesus themselves. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, we started this journey looking at Romans chapter 5 to 8 back in March. And here in this most profound section of the Bible, Paul is giving eight different glimpses from different angles about the Christian living under and within grace. It's like Paul is creating this fabulous stained glass sphere depicting life for the Christian believer who is now under grace and has Jesus as their Master and Lord. We looked at Romans chapter 5 and we discovered that only because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension that a person can have peace with God, access to God, a glorious hope, develop Christian character, God's love, have the Holy Spirit, have salvation from God's future wrath and have reconciliation with God. And it's all because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Muhammad can't save you, only Jesus can save you. Nobody and nothing else can guarantee a relationship with God which saves, rescues and transforms. Then in August we looked at Romans 6 and we discovered that we as Christians have been set free and are now alive under the power of the gospel. More alive than we've ever been before. And if that doesn't excite you, nothing will. You'll have a miserable time in heaven. Christians are alive under grace, in grace, on grace and grace is to emanate from us. Why? because of the wondrous gift of grace God expressed in the life, death, resurrection, ascension and glorification of his son Jesus. 
Jesus who is to be our master. Then in August again, you may remember, we looked at the first section of Romans 8, well the second section, but the first section that we looked at in verses 18 to 30. A passage of the Bible which is akin to a fabulous piece of jewellery consisting of the clearest of diamonds embedded in the purest of gold. I think it was Bishop John Robinson who once said, trying to preach from Romans 8 is like trying to express Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in words. And that was the man who wrote Honest to God, if you may remember. Walden students, it's good essay fodder. And we saw together from that passage that God is close and personal and that we know he himself has suffered. God cares for his creation and for his people through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Times of trouble may come, but we are being transformed into the image of his son Jesus. And we saw together that we will one day, one glorious day, have freedom from pain and suffering. Oh, to have knee joints that don't ache. It will be total release and freedom to truly live, to live with our God forever. And I hope that even if you have disagreed with something that I've said during this time, that you've been helped in your life to the praise and glory of God. And with that said, we go on in this magnificent piece of scripture in Romans 8. And the context of this passage is for those who have accepted God's free offer of salvation. Those who have accepted God's invitation of love and have entered into a relationship with him through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And here in this passage from verse 31, Paul explodes into a hymn of praise to God. He's gone through eight different pictures about grace and now he goes, wow. He starts off with a question. What then shall we say in response to this? He means all that he has said in the first eight chapters so far of this magnificent letter. Paul is challenging his readers to question him and fault him. He asks questions of his readers and in supplying the answers to his own rhetoric, Paul tells these Roman believers that salvation is entirely dependent upon God and nothing will take them away from God now that they are in relationship with him. Nothing. Worries, troubles, doubts, condemnation, nothing. Perhaps God's fickleness. Nope. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, anything in the universe and all that can separate the believer from their God? Nope. Nothing, Paul asserts. Absolutely nothing can separate the Christian from God. Jesus has justified us before God. He intercedes us for us before God. And most profound of all, Jesus loves you. Amazing. He even loves me, an Australian. Let's go on to look at this together more closely at this most magnificent. It's almost as good as Leviticus. So let's look briefly at what Paul is saying here 
not just to his original readers, the Roman Christians, who in a few years would be slaughtered by the Emperor Nero when blood ran down the rivers of Rome, ran the streets of Rome, but also to us some 2,000 years later. Paul has in mind that when hard times, troubles and suffering come, we fail to trust God. We doubt and think that we can be separate from God, apart from him. It's natural for us to then think that maybe I'm somehow separated from the kingdom as a result of my failure. And the emphasis in this section is in the security of the believer. The believer is in Christ. Paul says we do not need to fear the past, present or the future because as God's children we are secure in the love of Jesus. And there are five reasons, Paul goes on to say, why we are secure and will never be separated from God if we belong to the kingdom. Our first one is in verse 31. God is for us. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? We have enemies as Christians. We do have those who are against us, even here in the West. We've got the world against us. We've got the devil against us. And while they may be powerful, our God is all powerful. We have God on our side. And how is this seen? Is it seen in violence? As some of our, the Muslims would proclaim? God the Father is for us and it is evidenced by the fact that he gave us his Son. Paul says, God the Son is for us, God the Father is for us, and so is God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we're like Jacob and we cry out, all these things are against me. Such as when the A338 is blocked by the police as you're coming up to speak here on a Sunday evening. So if God is for us, who can be against us, brothers and sisters? And as we enter each day, we should realise that God is for us. Tell yourself that if you're able to when you first wake up. There's no need to fear anything, for the loving Father desires only the best for his children, even if they must go through some suffering to receive the best. Amazing. And then secondly, verse 32 Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul continues, If when we were outside the kingdom of God as non-believers, God gave us his best, now that we are his children and within his kingdom, will he not give us all that we need? Jesus Christ used this Same argument when he tried to convince people that it was foolish to worry and have fear. God cares for the birds and the sheep, maybe even the goats, and even the flowers of the fields. Surely he will care for you. God is dealing with his people on the basis of grace. Freely giving all things necessary to those who are in his kingdom. And Paul has ever points to the cross of Jesus such as its centrality to our faith Paul is arguing that just as God gave everything in the gift of his son Jesus God will continue to be unfalteringly generous 
in providing all needs of those who are his children. Then thirdly, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. We looked at this more fully in Romans 5. This means that he has declared us right before himself because of Jesus Christ and we are now members of his kingdom. Satan would love to accuse us, but we in the kingdom of God stand firm in Jesus Christ, God's Son. We are God's chosen in Jesus Christ and we are accepted. God will not accuse us, since it is he who justifies us. And for him to accuse us would mean that his salvation was a failure and we are still in our sins. We may accuse ourselves and people may accuse us, but God will never take us to court and accuse us. Jesus has already paid the penalty and we are secure in him. Our salvation is assured because God has his hand in ours. So who will accuse us? The devil certainly tries, that's one of his names, isn't it? The accuser. People we owe also accuse us and point a mocking and condemning finger at us. You bunch of Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites, aren't you? But none of their accusations and allegations can be sustained because as Christians we are justified by God before God. And then fourthly, Christ intercedes for us in verse 44. Oh, 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he is also interceding for us. Our enemies not only accuse us, but they try to condemn us as well. We even sometimes try to condemn ourselves. Or am I the only person here that does that? But for those in Christ Jesus, those who are believers and call themselves Christian, there is no condemnation before Almighty God because Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross and was raised to new life before ascending back to the right hand of God the Father. The Holy Spirit prays for us. We looked at that last time. And Jesus Christ also prays for us and intercedes for us. Jesus is our great advocate and high priest. And as our high priest, he gives us the grace we need to overcome the temptations that we face every day and therefore can defeat the enemy. Is that a wow? You are allowed to speak, I'm Australian. As our advocate, Jesus can forgive our sins and restore our fellowship with God. Intercession means that Jesus Christ represents us before the throne of God and we do not have to represent ourselves. And then lastly, Christ loves us. Verse 35 to 39. Amazing words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul goes on to say, we are conquerors, overcomers, victors. What are we conquerors and overcomers of? Look at the list. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, that's lack of food, nakedness, that's lack of clothing, we're all clothed here tonight I hope, danger or sword, that's persecution again, further on there's death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation. Another wow. None of those things can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate the Christian from God because God lives within us. The Father lives within you, the Son lives within you, and the Spirit lives within you. Wow. And because of Jesus, God is for us. God justifies us because of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus intercedes for us, and Jesus loves us. I know I said it before, it's the most profound piece of wisdom in all the world. Jesus loves me. Amazing. And here in verse 36, Paul refers back to the psalmist and Psalm 44 verse 22, which Cherry read beautifully for us earlier. And whereas the psalmist is complaining about the heavy hand of God being put upon his people, without cause and they're being innocent lambs being slaughtered. It's a remarkable difference in the tone of Paul's writing, isn't it? Paul, instead of being downcast, writes rejoicing in persecution and holiness. The psalmists are complaining and Paul is rejoicing. What a difference from both sides of the cross of Jesus Christ. The psalmist writing before the coming of the Messiah and his death on the cross and Paul writing after Jesus has lived, died, been raised to new life and ascended. Paul has told his readers that God cannot fail them regardless of what life throws at them. Paul explains that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We've seen in our series in Romans that God doesn't shelter his people from the sufferings and hard times of life. He doesn't do that because he knows that we need them for our spiritual growth. And we'll show a video later, shortly, from someone who had to endure. And we saw last time in verse 28, God assures us that the difficulties of life are working for us and are not against us. God allows trials and sufferings to come that they may be used for our good and his glory. We endure trials for his sake. Since we do, do you think that he will abandon us, says Paul? Not on your nelly, he says. Well, he would have if he was 21st century. Of course not. Instead, he comes closer to us through those hard times. And secondly, he gives us the power to conquer and overcome, verse 37. We're more than conquerors. We are super conquerors for the Lord Jesus. Jesus gives the victory and adds more victory. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later, victory was assured. Victory was won. We need not fear life nor death 
events past, events today or events in the future because Jesus Christ loved us and has given us the victory. This is not a promise with conditions attached. It is not, if you do this, God will do that. Our security with Jesus is established and we claim it for ourselves because we are in Jesus. Nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. So we should believe in it and rejoice in it. Death will not separate the Christian from God because as soon as we die as Christians physically, we enter God's presence. It's assured. I've died at least twice and I've been sent back twice. That's why I'm 315 years old on Tuesday. As Wally Allen once clipped, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. We looked previously at ways in which we can deal with troubles, so we won't go over that again. I will say this though. As some of you know, my own mother died just over two weeks ago. Both my parents were anti-God and anti-church. That's how I became a Christian, because I decided to go through some teenage rebellion. In fact, at one stage, they probably would have made Richard Dawkins look like Billy Graham. But in this time of my own trouble, I have sought for God to be glorified, even through the death of my atheist mother. It would probably be much to her horror, even though she did soften her over the years to the idea of a God, much less a personal God, So how have I sought to glorify God through my mother's death? Simply by the amazing conversations I've had with people who have opened up to me in no other way. And have also therefore opened up to God himself and his glorious gospel as Paul tells us here in Romans 8. Amazing. So we all go through times of trouble. Two quick stories. I know somebody who was at a wedding in the Savoy Hotel in London yesterday. The wedding was between a North Korean lady and a Chinese man. About 15 years ago, the North Korean lady we know as Sunny was hiding under the kitchen sink from the Chinese police when they came for her family to take them back to the labour camp in North Korea following their defection. Now she's marrying at the Savoy. Well, it's not quite the Ritz but God had protected them and brought them through persecution. Seeing as it's up on the screen, we'll go with that. I was going to skip it, but obviously the Spirit wants to say something. One other thing that we all have experience of as well as troubles is doubt. But again, am I the only one? It is, I think, a very rare person indeed who has had not suffered with some form of doubt, particularly in regards to salvation. And by doubt, I do not mean as in doubting God's very existence, but rather doubting some aspect of the Christian life, such as our example given here by Paul, being separated from God. Paul here, with these questions he poses, seems to me to be fervently and emphatically encouraging his readers to remove any doubt in their minds about any possibility of being separated from their God. Yet I know that even the most ardent and mature believers have moments of doubt, don't they? If they're honest. We all have doubts at times, I'm sure, even if we aren't aware of them. 
For when we sin, which we all do at times, we're doubting God, aren't we? When we fail to do what we ought to do, we're doubting God and his salvation of us. When we fail to not do what we ought to do, again, we're doubting God and his salvation for us, aren't we? Isn't that when the world taunts us and says, well, you're a fine Christian, aren't you? You hypocrite. Look at what you did. Well, old hairy legs Satan, our great accuser. He does it all the time again. Look at what you did, you miserable human. God won't want you anymore. Ha ha. Again, or is that just me? Maybe it's my imagination. So what can we do with these doubts? Firstly, there are usually reasons behind our doubts. For instance, when doubt arises concerning God's assured promise of salvation to us, well that usually occurs after we've engaged in some willful act of sin or some defeat in a spiritual battle. And when we sin, not only do we forget who we are as God's children, but we also doubt what God has said and to be true in his word, don't we? So allow me to suggest some steps towards overcoming and working our way through this kind of doubt. Firstly, we confess. We confess our doubt to God and he will listen and cleanse us. Draw near to us. Help us. And if doubt persists, try talking to somebody whom you trust and confess to them your own doubts. And they may well be able to help you and counsel you. Secondly, have assurance of salvation. Be assured and let your mind be controlled by the Holy Spirit so that you are not led astray. Your salvation rests on nothing apart from God's promises and Jesus' righteousness. Come back to this passage in Romans 8, if that doesn't convince you. Test yourself as Paul exhorts elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Thirdly, live a righteous life. Live the truth that you believe. When we started the Christian life, we were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that righteousness needs to be lived out in our lives. Living right helps overcome any doubts. Fourthly, show total trust in God for your life. The faith we have is a defensive weapon against the mistruths, the doubts that enter our minds. The mind is powerful, folks. Allow yourself to be controlled by the Spirit. And by maintaining our trust in God's promises and God's power, doubts are extinguished. Then there's the Bible. Read and study God's Word so to know, understand and to live the truth. Our lives are to be controlled by the truth as revealed in the Bible. When we know truth really well, we can recognise the lies that we are told even lies from the pulpit, which happens in some churches. And then the preacher doesn't, or lecturers don't like to be heckled. It's alright to heckle at Morelands. I did it for about 18 months. Until I was told to be quiet. The Word of God, the Bible, is there to be studied diligently so that by trusting in the Holy Spirit to lead and reveal it to us, we get to know God and His promises. Then we, when we hear that nagging little voice that says, God doesn't love you anymore, Dave. 
Ha ha! We can say, oh, go get your legs waxed, hairy legs. We can say, yes, he does. My God loves me. Jesus loves me. Because Jesus died to prove his love of me so that I may truly live for him. And then lastly, prayer. Talk to God because that is how we are energized. Fighting doubt in our own power is useless because we will succumb. Ask God to help us overcome our doubts and he will help us. When we talk to God, we strengthen our relationship with him. When we see God answer prayer, our faith is matured and doubts are more easily cast aside. And if you struggle in prayer, again, ask somebody else to pray for you and with you. So let's recapitulate. We've seen together that there is to be no fear of separation from God if we hold on to him. God is for us. Christ died for us. God the Holy Spirit lives within us, praying for us, guiding us, empowering us, and is the seal and mark of our salvation. God has declared us his sons and daughters if we have chosen to follow him. Jesus Christ intercedes for us, prays for us, forgives us, and loves us. We saw that nothing can separate the Christian from God because God lives within them. Because of Jesus, God is for us if we are one, a Christian. God justifies us because of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus intercedes for us, forgives us, and loves us. Paul's questions tell us of a God that we are to believe in. God loves us. Our confidence for our salvation is to be in him and him alone. This love is not feeble or fickle or pernickety. That may well be our love of him, but it is not his love for us. His love for us is almighty, persevering, preserving, affirming, stable, assured, true and steadfast. We persevere for God because he perseveres for us. That's basic doctrine. Then we looked at a way we can overcome these times of doubt. We can overcome by confessing to God, being assured, living a life worthy of God, having faith by showing total trust in God for our life and reading and studying God's word and talking to him. So how can we conclude? Firstly, for those of us here who would call ourselves Christian, be assured that God is for you. He lives within you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate you from God because he has you in his hands. He lives within you. Know that there is to be no fear from separation from God. God is for you. Christ died for you. God the Holy Spirit lives within you, praying for you, guiding you, empowering you. God has put his mark upon you. You are his child and he loves you. God has declared you his son or daughter because you have chosen to follow him. You've answered his call. Jesus Christ prays for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus Christ exemplified God's love by dying on the cross for you so that you may have new life and life to the full to the splendour and glory of God and God alone. As a Christian, be assured. 
go be a super conqueror for God out there. Is that not a great comfort to know? Scripture can be a great comfort, can't it? But, as I'm sure you are aware that while Scripture is meant to be a comfort, it is also to be a challenge. If a church only preaches about comfort, then the God that they worship is limp and impotent. And a church that only preaches challenge, well their God is the God of Richard Dawkins, basically. So Scripture is to be both a comfort and a challenge. And the challenge for us tonight from this passage is twofold. We are to live such lives as Christians that when we are accused by Satan or other people, the accusations themselves are ridiculed and not ourselves. A second challenge is that we are to tell others about this God of love. We are to tell others that people can enter into a living and dynamic relationship with God only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and him alone. When was the last time you told somebody this good news? Or invited somebody along to church here? Or to the upcoming Alpha course? Or when we have a Christianity explored, the Christianity course? Because basically it's a sin if you're not evangelizing in some way. Jesus commanded us, go. This place really should be full. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your written word. Thank you that it is both a comfort and a challenge. Help us as your people here in this community to be shining lights of your glory. So that people can be without excuse about not having heard your good news for them. And help us as a church to be a shining light on the hill, both a caring and a challenging community. And Father, once again I lift up my uh, brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. Help them, sustain them, guide them, and let them know that we are praying for them. Amen.